Welcome to Monco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Monco Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is the uh, the third week of July when you'll uh, be able to hear this. Uh, I'm on vacation again this week. Lucky me. Uh, today we're going to talk about our uh, get back to a landmark study, our landmarks of Onco Farm series, and we're talking about the the uh, the GOG Gynecologic Oncology Group uh, GOG uh, 172 study, which is by Armstrong and colleagues published uh, 15 years ago uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, intraperitoneal cisplatin and paclitaxel in ovarian cancer. This is um, I think a really interesting landmark study to talk about. Because when you look in our favorite four-letter uh, guidelines uh, for ovarian cancer, uh, you'll see the preferred regimens are carboplatin and paclitaxel for this patient population, or with or without BEV, if you're a BEV believer. Um, uh, and then there's a list of other recommended regimens, and then there's the useful in certain circumstances. And that's where we find the intraperitoneal paclitaxel cisplatin regimen. So it's not even a preferred regimen. I think it's really interesting and we'll see why because this is an incredibly effective uh, regimen, also incredibly toxic. All right, so uh, that's that's why we're talking about this. Uh, you know, if um, you know, when I took care of, of women with, with ovarian cancer, we did not do interperitoneal chemo. We would do the, the carboplatin paclitaxel um, and we'll talk about why that is uh, pretty early on here. And, uh, and the authors uh, write, this is 15 years ago, quote, the reluctance of clinicians to embrace intraperitoneal therapy is due to multiple factors, including its high cost uh, and toxicity and clinicians' lack of familiarity with peritoneal administration and catheter placement techniques, right? You, gotta, you have to have a peritoneal catheter uh, and uh, you have to know the, the dwell time, you have to warm uh, the product. Uh, lots of stuff goes into doing this uh, appropriately and safely. So let's talk about the patients in this study. So this is just stage three, epithelial ovarian cancer or primary peritoneal carcinoma. Um, now the most important, um, okay, so stage three, first of all. So this is the FIGO staging, which is um, the International Federation of Gynecologic Oncology. It's FIGO because it's a romance language. Um, so the FIGO definition of stage three is basically, you know, the disease has spread beyond the ovaries or the fallopian tubes into the peritoneal cavity. So there are peritoneal mets and or node involvement, but no distant metastatic spread. Really common presenting type of ovarian cancer. Uh, it's already spread throughout the, the peritoneal cavity because the ovaries kind of sit by themselves uh, and, and you don't tend to have symptoms until uh, the disease spreads through uh, the ovarian capsule. All right, so they had to have, they had to be optimally debulked. That means they've had surgery from a gynecologic oncologic surgeon, optimal debulking means there's less than one centimeter of residual tumor mass uh, remaining, ECOG zero to two. Uh, when we look at our, our, our patients here, uh, you, you get kind of what you would expect here patient-wise. Um, you know, most of these folks are uh, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. 90% um, uh, are, are white, uh, sadly consistent with what you see in oncology studies. Uh, most ECOG 0 and 1, very few ECOG 2 folks. And 80% are serous adenocarcinoma, the most common histology here. Uh, and by the way, these would not be your younger folks with germ cell tumors. Um, uh, and 64% did have uh, residual disease, but it did have to be optimally debulked. And most of these folks were ovarian cancer, around 90%, 10% primary peritoneal uh, cancer, and more than 50% were high grade, so grade three. So these are uh, these are the types of folks that you would hope you could cure uh, following surgery with adjuvant chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy uh, was com a comparison of IV 
versus interperitoneal, so they have about 200 on each arm. Now, the IV arm is not carbotaxel, which is the, the current preferred regimen. It's cisplatin paclitaxel, and, and you'll hear why. Uh, this is not maybe favored by a lot of community-based institutions. Uh, the paclitaxel dose was 135 milligrams per squared IV over 24 hours. Uh, we, we tend to think that 175 over three hours is just as effective uh, with similar toxicity. Uh, and then on day two, they got cisplatin, 75 milligrams per squared IV. Now the interperitoneal arm gets the same paclitaxel dose on day one. Then on day two, they get the intraperitoneal cisplatin, six, or 100 milligrams per meter squared, uh, in two liters of warmed normal saline. And then on day eight, intraperitoneal paclitaxel, 60 milligrams per meter squared. So you're getting three doses of chemotherapy in the interperitoneal arm, one dose IV, two doses interperitoneal. The interperitoneal dose of cisplatin is greater than the IV dose of cisplatin. So just amount of chemo going into the body, which doesn't mean that's gonna equate to, to more exposure, but there's certainly the interperitoneal folks are getting more chemo than the IV folks. All right, um, we will, let's, let's talk about how, uh, how these patients, um, uh, we'll talk about the toxicity, but we'll talk just generally uh, how they tolerated this based on how many received all the cycles. So uh, 210 patients uh, ended up going on to be eligible to receive IV chemotherapy. Of those 210, 189 received six cycles of IV cisplatin and IV paclitaxel. All right, so not an easy, easy regimen to deliver, right? The paclitaxel is 24 hours. Uh, it's a vesicant. Cisplatin uh, is the most toxic drug we probably give uh, acutely. Uh, and yet uh, 190 out of 210, you know, that's upwards of 90% received all six cycles of IV chemo. Uh, 205 were eligible to receive intraperitoneal chemo. 38, not 38%, only 38, this is less than 20% total, received, uh, sorry, 86, sorry, 38 only actually got one cycle of intraperitoneal. 86 received all six cycles, less than half tolerate all cycles of intraperitoneal chemo. And if you had toxicity from either interperitoneal chemotherapy or cisplatin-based toxicity, you get switched over to a carboplatin-based regimen. So most patients on interperitoneal did not receive all six cycles. Only 11 received five, 10 received four, 14 received three, 30 received two, 38 received one. So pretty high dropout in the folks in the interperitoneal. In fact, 16 received none. 16 were randomized to interperitoneal and probably said, no thanks, this sounds too toxic. I don't want, you know, an intraperitoneal catheter or whatever it may be. So you had a lot of folks who did not receive the full prescribed course of therapy with intraperitoneal chemo, right? A lot of, a lot of folks, quote, would have dropped out of the regimen or, or, or actually uh, received a different regimen. However, based on their intent to treat analysis, they are still classified as in the intraperitoneal arm. Um, was overwhelmingly effective. The, the median PFS was 18 versus 23, 24 months. That's a delta of five and a half months. Moderate change, uh, moderate improvement in median PFS. If you, if you look at the Katmeyer curves, they, they start to separate at six months and stay pretty equally separated uh, out to, to four to five years, 50 months average of follow-up here. The median OS curve starts to separate around 12 to 18 months. Median overall survival was 50 months with IV versus 65 months uh, with intraperitoneal chemo. The, uh, the four-year overall survival, which is probably a pretty good mark of cure, 50% versus over 60%. So you're talking a number needed to treat of, of less than 10, probably. This is a really large delta. It's a really big impact size, the benefit of intraperitoneal, intraperitoneal chemo. Um, 
And so when you think about uh, chasing the cure for cancer or the cancer moonshot and finding new drugs and new techniques, you know, sometimes the better treatment is out there. It's just really toxic and challenging to deliver. Um, uh, I was at Hope a, a few years ago and someone was, was giving, um, pr giving a presentation, a research presentation on um, something with ovarian cancer and I was just shocked uh, at how successful they were at delivering intraperitoneal chemo, a slightly modified regimen of this. And I, I thought this is what people need to hear is how to give this safely because this is, is, is incredibly largely impactful when you look at this overall survival benefit. So it's challenging to give. It's also very challenging for patients to tolerate. So the IV group, uh, they did much better from a safety profile. So the intraperitoneal group had more leukopenia, uh, more severe grade four thrombocytopenia, plays less than 25, 12% versus 4%, uh, worse in the interperitoneal. More GI, twice as much GI toxicity, so probably nausea and vomiting. Um, more than three times as much a renal or genital urinary event, so probably acute kidney injury. Um, twice as many neurologic events, so probably neuropathy from cisplatin. Um, uh, uh, more fever, more infection. Uh, a lot more fatigue, more metabolic events, so probably hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia from the cisplatin, and more pain, probably neuropathic pain. So even though you're giving this a lot of this chemotherapy intraperitoneal, you might think, oh, there won't be a lot of systemic toxicity because it's more of a local effect, but no, there's a much more uh, systemic toxicity from intraperitoneal chemo. Uh, you know, the dialysis, uh, the peritoneal catheters, not dialysis, the peritoneal catheters can clot off, They're, it can be painful and unpleasant for these women. Um, but uh, so this is not a regimen that's incredibly popular. It's not used a whole lot. But if uh, I had a loved one who had stage three ovarian cancer, and our favorite guidelines say you maybe consider this for stage two as well if they're automatic bulk, but certainly stage three, if they want what's best, what is most effective, this is uh, that regimen and finding a center that does that would be something uh, to look for and to consider it at your at your institution but but you want some training for all your folks involved in how to do this I don't I don't know what those are because I've never worked at a place that delivered interperitoneal chemo uh, but when you look at what's the most effective thing this is the most effective thing even though it's not widely done and sadly this is not uh, this is not news to folks who maybe follow the ovarian cancer uh, data very closely there was um, uh, a big news article uh, maybe five or six years ago that many women with ovarian cancer, especially in rural communities and underserved communities, uh, don't have access to a gynecologic oncologic surgeon and they have uh, you know, a less trained surgeon in this, this type of surgery who they get their primary debulking surgery, which is really the most important part uh, of treatment. A little bit like glioblastoma multiforma treatment, the most important treatment is optimal debulking uh, surgically. Then you give the drugs. You, again, similar um, thing here with ovarian cancer. You really optimal debulking, then your platinum and your taxane uh, comes after that. But wow, you're not going to read very many twi tr trials where you have where you know you can cure um, you know one woman for every ten that you give uh, the treatment to. Um, it's hard to it's hard to find um, improvements. Uh, that are that uh, impactful uh, today since we do a decent job in, in quite a few malignancies. Well, that's it for this episode of OncoFarm. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can follow the podcast on both OncoFarm and Instagram at, uh, at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm -hmm.